on this episode of The Kinked Wire. The primary safety and primary efficacy endpoints that were preset in consideration with the FDA and all the societies were met. You look at what we did, what we said, and using those definitions, filters are safe and effective. Welcome to The Kinked Wire, the interventional radiology podcast from SR Publications. You can learn more on our website, surweb.org slash kinkedwire. In this episode, host Dr. Warren Krakow speaks with Preserve Trial PI, Dr. Matt Johnson, about the lessons learned from the trial's initial data, his collaboration with vascular surgery and others in the study, and more. So we're really lucky to have Matt Johnson back uh, again to, to talk to us a little bit about the Preserve trial. Matt, it's, it's great to have you here. Thanks for being here. Why don't you tell us a little bit, if you don't mind, just for folks who don't know, what the Preserve trial is all about. Thanks, Warren. I'm really happy to have the opportunity to talk about Preserve and why we did it and where we stand in the whole bit. So going through this will be, I think, fun. Good. So the reason we did it, Preserve, was because of the justified fear of the unknown. People didn't know really what was going on with filters. The studies that had been done up to Preserve, there were lots of problems with them. But despite that level of unknowing regarding filters, hundreds of thousands are implanted each year. So we did it because people were concerned about potential complications of filters and lack of understanding of what their efficacy was in what populations. Because of that, over the course of many years, starting more than 10 years prior to publication, the FDA safety warning that came out was 2009. And so SIR responded to that. I worked with the, on the response to that with others. And then at the same time, the Society of Vascular Surgery representatives worked on it. So back in 2010, uh, we were gearing toward this study. And then over the course of the next five years, working with multiple physicians, scientists, FDA, heads of other groups of organizations like the hematologists and other groups, we put together a protocol to study filters. Knowing, and this is a key point, is that the standard of care for treating people with venous thromboembolic disease, a disease state that can manifest as DVT and or PE, it's a complex disease state. And so we wanted to address the complexity of the disease state and the use of filters in that. And what we know as a basis is that anticoagulation is the standard of care. If you have PE or DVT, some form of anticoagulation, if possible, is the standard of care. We, we could expand that now, and it's going to get more complex given that lysis could be the standard of care for PE, but we're still working on understanding that as well. But filters have been around for many, many years. The first ones came in, in the implantable, surgically implantable filters in the 50s. So we're talking many, many, many decades of people putting things in to prevent blood clots flowing from the legs to the pulmonary arteries. And filters in our current manifestations with the retrievable filters in the bodies. So 2002, 2003, that's when the, the retrievable filters came in, adding another level of complexity. So given that, given that people were putting all these metallic objects into people and trying to prevent blood clots in a wide variety of individuals with a wide manifestation of venous thromboembolic disease or not, because some people are putting them in so-called prophylactically, 
We then came up with this protocol. We can't do a randomized controlled trial because it's one device, one indication. And by the way, you'd have to make the control population standard of care, which is anticoagulation, and then not anticoagulate other people, which I don't think is ethical. I think if you have a person who has an available standard of care and you just say, no, we're not doing that, I don't think that's fair. So previous studies have involved having people who could be anticoagulated and then you get filters in patients who are anticoagulated, and what does that do for evaluating their efficacy? So Preserve came out, lots of discussions over five years, and we finally decided we're gonna do a prospective evaluation of people who need filters. So that was the first inclusion criteria, is physicians decided that those people needed filters. And then those people were going to be followed and were for two years, with the primary endpoint at one year. There were two endpoints, primary safety and primary efficacy, which were composites, and primary safety was a composite of a, a lot of things, including freedom from serious perioperative events, clinically significant complications, which we can talk about, including like things like embolization, cable inclusion. And then there was the efficacy endpoint, which was symptomatic PE at a year. So that was also included uh, procedural tech and technical success. So that was the plan. We were going to take these people, enroll them if they needed filters, and then follow them, paying attention to all sorts of details throughout the course of that care, including why the filters were put in, what the intention of the filter was. Then we followed them with mandatory imaging at three months, which was an abdominal x-ray or on-table x-ray, and then a CT with contrast at one and two years. So there was mandatory imaging, there was mandatory visit follow-up, three, six, nine, et cetera, months. And then we looked at our results. In that, we enrolled a total of 1,429 subjects, patients, participants. And of those 1,429, 1,421 actually had filters placed. So that was our population of people who had filters placed, 1,421 at 54 sites in the United States. And what did the data show for those 1421? There's a ton of data. Part of it is when you have that many patients over that long, there's a ton. And, so, the, and, but, and the stratification for the different types of filters, which you mentioned as well, all the FDA right. supported. Right, because that was a mandate. This was something called a 522, which was an FDA mandate that questions were answered. And so companies who manufactured filters in the United States were given the opportunity of answering the questions on their own. And there were, I believe eight or nine questions, all with multiple subparts. And the FDA said, you can do this on your own or you can enter preserve. So that with that mandate, it made it very reasonable for the companies that sold those filters to join preserve. And all the companies that continued to manufacture filters in the United States joined. The only filter that was not enrolled in that was being sold at that time is the select filter by Cook because they were doing a very similar study with the same questions uh -huh. being answered at that time. But the Cook Tulip filter was enrolled in Preserve. Eventually it became, there were seven to begin. One filter that was being manufactured at the time, very soon after we began the study, the company that manufactured it chose not to manufacture it anymore. So we were down to six filters, but those are the six filters at that time that are still currently being sold in the United States. And that was part of it though. The FDA didn't say, what does each specific filter do? The FDA said, as a class, are filters safe and are they effective in doing what they're supposed to do? 
And so the FDA, with whom we worked and work still for years and years, um, helped inform the study design and helped us in our evaluations of the results. And we were always, it was a constant communication. But we did work with the FDA and we did work with the companies and we worked with the site investigators and we worked with the subjects, the patients. Mm -hmm. We comprised a member, the steering committee was not just interventional radiologists, mm -hmm. but it's vascular surgeons. I mean, my co-guy, the guys who worked at this from the beginning, David Gillespie is a vascular surgeon, Rod White's a vascular surgeon, and then Jim Spies is obviously an IR guy that we all know. And then John Rechtenwald is a vascular surgeon. Mm -hmm. So that's the steering committee. We worked together for years and years and years together with all these entities to come up with this. And I think that's a valuable thing for us as a society because it worked. I mean, when you have that close collaboration between societies and governmental entities and manufacturers, good things can come out of it. I agree. I mean, I think there's so much to unpack here. There's the involvement with the FDA, the government, there's the agreements and, and work with the vascular surgery. Hematologists were involved. Of course, they should be involved. As you highlighted, this is a disease that affects the blood and the, and, and the blood system. It's a coagulation disease. Thromboembolic disease is a disease state that affects these parts and filters play a role along with the standard of care and so on and so forth. And I think that's really important to, to bring out for the you know audience at large of cardiologists, vascular surgeons, interventional radiologists, everybody who's involved with placing these devices. We are working on what we're going to do about the two-year results and mm. David Glass spearheading that one. So, you know, the very short capsule summary is, and this is the important things, the primary safety and primary efficacy endpoints that were preset in consideration with the FDA and all the societies were met. You look at what we did, what we said, and using those definitions, filters are safe and effective. As we note in the paper, without a comparison group, mm -hmm. it's not a randomized controlled, placebo-controlled trial. Right? That can't be done. Right. But as a conclusion of the study, within the constraints that we have defined, filters are safe and effective. And I, people have already argued whether that's possible. As we showed in these 1,421 patients, there were very, very few complications. And that's a very important thing, even as you define them. Like there are some that were obviously filter related complications. Mm -hmm. And the number of PEs that occurred in these 1,421 patients was 23. So 23, that was the goal to prevent PE. Yeah. And this was a very wide catch basin of what constituted PE. It's really important to note of those PE, none was fatal. Mm -hmm. So I say that demonstrates effectiveness if you want to be really strict and say there's no comparison group, what would have happened? I can't argue that. Mm. But I can say that in this group, almost three quarters had uh, venous thrombolic disease at the time of placement, either acute DVT or PE or a chronic PE for which they were undergoing therapy. It was 71 point something percent. So that's a pretty high incidence of venous thrombolic disease in a patient population. And 81% of them had either contraindication or failure of anticoagulants. So when you have more than 80% of people who can't be treated with standard of care at that time, and then you get a filter, yeah. and then you don't have a PE, that's pretty good. It's not a surprise that, you know, filters are a, you know, sort of a legal tennis ball right now going back and forth. I, you know, I'm not a lawyer and whatever, but I would think 
that at least the data that you're describing really do show the efficacy and as importantly, safety of filter placement. You would want to, uh, of course, follow um, the strict indications for filter placement. And personally, I am not at all bothered, and I think most reasonable people would agree by the fact that there's not a suitable control group. It's, you know, it's like if you jump out of an airplane with a parachute, do you need to do a control group of folks who jump out without a parachute? I mean, I don't, I don't think that's necessary. And I think most people would probably agree that it's, that it's not ethical to do that control study. So I think it's, it's really important to highlight the safety, of course, the efficacy, but the safety and, and the fact that, you know, you were able to do this in such a collegial way with the vascular surgery colleagues who I think are publishing things in parallel. Is that right? This study was published simultaneously in both JVIR and JVS, okay. which is huge. Yeah. Yeah. I think used appropriately filters are, they're essential. Yeah. You know, that's, yeah. I believe that filters are essential and that if people were to consider them like too dangerous to place, that's an errant. Yeah. Uh, but there's so much in this. I mean, we have a lot to learn and a lot to inform our therapy. And these are some of the points that we believe the study demonstrated. And that is... This was done in a very uh, standardized fashion is that people were followed. And one of the mm -hmm. real problems with filters in the past is that the person or persons putting them in were never much involved with their care. Well, people would say go to an IR or a surgeon, put a filter in. We had great. That really isn't. If you are a filter person, you're going to put a filter in. It is incumbent upon you to develop a dialogue with patient and care team to follow the filter. People who put filters in need to know the results of this trial. And that is, even though they're rare, when you put a metal device in a very vibrant structure, the vena cava moves, bends, compresses, it's paper thin. And these are metal devices. And over the course of heartbeats and respirations, they change their relationship to the vena cava. And the vena cava is not round. It's not a cylinder, except maybe occasionally in some people. Whereas the filter legs, at that point, they're roundish. So you put those in a teardrop-shaped or lens-shaped object mm -hmm. that moves around. It's subjected to things. And these people have differential risks of clotting all the time. Mm -hmm. So you put this thing in, you do something, you put it in for an operation because there's a temporary contraindication to anticoagulation. You got to take it out when it's no longer necessary because over the course of time, things happen. What we did show is there were in the 201 CTs that were available at a year, 31 of them demonstrated by the preset definitions, some degree of perforation or even penetration of adjacent structures. But is perforation necessarily a complication? You know, it's a metal foot that may have left the vena cava and it's sitting there in pericable structures, which may be fat, which may be nothing, or it may go into the duodenum, which probably matters a lot. Yep. So in order for us to do the best care, this is a, I believe this is a conclusion of the study. It is incumbent upon the person who places the filter to develop a plan mm -hmm. for either retrieval or follow-up. And you got to do that. And even if the filter is necessary and it's you follow that filter and maybe with some degree, I think annual imaging makes sense. Like we did a very limited CT scan and look at where the filter is, whether there's anything. Because a lot of the times, even with cable thrombosis, people didn't have symptoms. Okay, does that matter? Yeah, I think it matters. So what if you have a filter in place and a person still needs it, but there's some degree of penetration, say, into the aorta? Mm. 
Well, I think what you do is you take that filter out and the person still needs a filter. You put a different one in. Now, yeah. Preserve didn't show that, but it began to demonstrate this manner of thinking on filter care. Like it's a longitudinal thing that is a relationship that you develop as a clinical physician with the patient in whom it has been placed. We see them in clinic, yeah. right? That's what I, I follow a lot of people with filters in place in clinic, right? Is do you still need it? And what do you do thereafter? So I think that's a major thing. Filter complications are rare, but they exist. And I believe that if we continue to pay attention to our patients, that we will do a better job of preventing those complications. I, I, think, that's I think that's the good. other sort of really big um, take home point. First is don't be afraid of filters. They're an important tool. But, but the other one is you have to follow these patients. And I think you pointed out that's hard to do for a bunch of reasons. Um, one of which being at least traditionally IRs weren't necessarily accustomed to that, though now we should be more accustomed to that. And your paper shows, at least in the case of filters, why. Um, but I think too, oftentimes, you know, we, we use that term loss to follow up with patients. I remember back in the day placing these prophylactically for trauma. You know, a patient would come in for trauma and, you know, you'd be embolizing, a, you know, like a pelvic artery or something. And they, you know, they'd say, oh, while you're in there, forget mm -hmm. that it's a different, you know, system. It's the venous system. Right. Could you place a filter prophylactically? Yeah, sure. No problem. So you do. And then, you know, they go and they get, you know, they, they live through their trauma. They get their pelvic reconstruction. They get this and that. You know, we don't even know where in the hospital they are anymore, let alone once they get discharged from the hospital. That's a problem. And, that, and you're right. That's something that the IR, the vascular surgeon, whoever's placing that filter needs to develop a plan to figure out what you're going to do. How are you going to keep track of these folks who are running around with these filters on? And they may not even know they have one, not only because of the pin-sized hole that you're talking about. All they knew is they had major pelvic trauma. Mm -hmm. you know, now, thank God they can walk. They can, you know, they're living their life. You know, they don't, they didn't know they got a filter placed, or they may have been told, but you know, they don't, they don't hold on to that piece of knowledge at all. Yeah, if, if that wasn't the major thing they were concerned Correct. about, right? That's a big deal. And even in this study, and this is again, it, it, these things are informative. As you look at the patients in each group for their plans, because we we said try to have a plan. Is it? Mm. Are you placing permanent filter? Are you placing a filter that you plan to remove? And we looked at those groups and we found that if the patient's filters were planned to be permanent, 42% of them died without a removal attempt in the first year. Hmm. Whereas those that were planned to be retrieved with a plan, only I think it was 12% that died in the first year. So right there, it's like that is, okay, does that mean the plan saved lives? No, it probably means that the people who had to permanent filters were much sicker, yeah. but that's something, right? Like, let's have a plan. Because mm -hmm. then when you look at those subgroups, you find that many were lost to follow-up, even in this, more so in the permanent filter group than in the other one, you can begin to get an idea of the complexity of the populations and the difficulties of having plans and what happens thereafter. So even in this standardized study, lots of people, we had lost to follow-ups in the 198 patients with permanent. There were 12 that were lost to follow-up. There were 13 that were lost to follow-up in the indeterminate group. And there were 30 that were lost to follow-up in the temporary group, even though there was a much greater group. There were almost 1,000 in that group. But these are people that we tried very hard to keep really close tabs on, and we lost follow-up on them. Mm. And that, that's this standardized group. So let's talk about it if you're in 
your own clinical practice, running all the things that you do, it's really hard. So that's not like it's saying, oh, you guys have to follow this. It's so easy. Let's do it. It's hard. Yeah. Something we should understand about this is that it's going to take an effort to provide optimal care. And that's the truth. And it's not maybe the truth you want to hear. It'd be great to say, oh, these are simple to put in, simple to take out, yada, yada, yada. Well, it's not. Well, yeah, I think that's that's a really important point. I mean, you mentioned you're a filter person. Um, and so many IRs, and, and I imagine vascular surgeons, do so many different things that, you know, gee, I've got this TIPS patient, and then I've got this, you know, I've got the trauma folks, and I've got the GI bleed, and wait, there's some paras coming in, and oh, I forgot about the filter patient. It's a lot to keep track of. And I, and I think you're right, that gets to the longitudinal aspect, uh, because it is a disease process. You know, it seems like a five-minute procedure, but when you agree to that five-minute procedure, you're also agreeing to follow the patient up and provide that longitudinal care. And that's that's a, that's a huge point to be made. Uh, another is, however, uh, most of these filters need to come out. That's the, mm -hmm. That would be the thing. that you, There are going to be people with coagulopathies that require continuous, and maybe they've, they've failed on their anticoagulation. But thing is, new anticoagulants come out all the time. Yeah. New anticoagulant regimens come out. Mm -hmm. I was part of the group that developed the clinical practice guidelines for the SIR for filters, and amongst that group were hematologists, mm -hmm. right? And I remember very clearly what she said was, you always have to remember that, is that even as your therapies move forward, so do ours. Mm -hmm. And if one anticoagulant failed, another might not. So that's one of the considerations. But for those of us who are always evaluating, you know, as part of the group, like trying to work for the best patient care, taking that filter out is important. And one of the things that was said in the past, or at least was a belief that filter retrieval can be hard, it, you know, it may be failed and all that stuff. And that, boy, did, did Preserve demonstrate that's not the case. Because these were 54 centers, wide variance in experience and levels of, you know, comfortable filter removal, right? Some people were in these groups. I mean, we made, we strove to find variable levels, but even so of the patients that came back, and again, this is a higher percentage than in most because it's, you know, you're watching above. So you're, you're getting people back. We had almost 50% of the people who had filters that could be retrieved came back for retrieval. So that's a pretty high rate mm. that exactly was uh, 647 that came back. And when they came back, Retrieval was attempted in 634 of them. Now, what happened in those other 13? Was that a failed retrieval at that point? No, it was a decision made by the person doing the venogram that it wasn't appropriate to move the filter at that time. Okay. So that's something that happened in the past. It's a semantics thing. It's a lexicon thing that we need to agree on, just like PE, yeah. just like DDT, just like perforation is, what is a retrieval success or failure? And it's actually at that point and there's a, a, it took a long time to put this flow chart in the paper, but it looks at what we did at each point trying to take out those filters. And of those 637 that came back, we tried in 634. And then we followed what happened in the other ones. And in the other ones that we hadn't tried the first time, only six of them came back. I don't know why the other seven didn't come back. The data weren't that strong. But of the six that came back, all of them had their filters retrieved. So that was a the, that was successful in the first attempt to retrieve that filter. Mm. Of the 634 that were attempted in the first place, right, that came in 647, and we tried to take them out in 634. 614 retrievals were successful at the first attempt, and of the 20 that weren't successful, 12 came back, and they were all successful. Mm. 
we had a success rate in filter retrieval of 632 of 640 mm. points. So that's way more than you might otherwise yeah. think. Yeah. That was taken out at three months though, right? At a mean of three months. It was very variable, mm. but it was a mean of three months and a median of like 87 days. So if you're following these people, paying attention to whether they need the filter and taking it out at the right time, the success rate is huge. And uh, that is important, right? Don't forget about them. You know, I just took out a filter that had been in place for 11 years. That's a discussion. That's a big deal. It's not a big deal to take out a filter that's been in place for three months. Right. So we can improve therapy by paying attention. And that's, I think, a lot of what Preserve said. It's first, agree upon definitions, and then agree upon what we believe is an appropriate methodology to follow, to treat people, and then do it. And I think if we do that, we can greatly improve the use of this very valuable device. I know we're starting to, to run out of time here, which is unfortunate because there's just so much to ask and talk about. You've alluded to it, but what other things should we be looking at going forward? I'd like to stress the importance of that longitudinal care. I think mm -hmm. people really should consider adding filters patients to their clinic follow-up. Okay. It could be, you know, in the world of virtual visits, yeah. It's a lot easier for everybody. You don't necessarily need to do a huge physical exam in these people because they're going to tell you, you know, I got lower extremity swelling right. or whatever. And if you have scheduled imaging, you're going to see them in person anyway at some regular spot. So there's a way, I think, to integrate filter care into clinical practice. The second is in our follow-ups, and I, I'm looking forward to the presentation of two-year follow-up, right? So we've got that coming on with Preserve Dip following what happened to those penetrations over the course of the people who still had filters, realizing that having improved follow-up is going to lead to removal of filters, et cetera. So, you know, maybe the complication rate that we see in Preserve is going to be better than might have otherwise been ex expected in outside clinical practice. But then that's an important point, yeah. right? That, you know, let's pay attention. I'm involved in a trial right now where we're looking at um, an absorbable filter. Oh, wow. And I think that be a future, right? We're doing it. It's a randomized controlled trial. We've just enrolled the first patient in the United States in it. Huh. Um, but it would be um, we place the filters in and we compare it to standard of care for people who require a temporary filter. How cool! And so <laughs> that it, it's massively complicated. It's so hard. Uh, it's the new thing. It's the, my new preserve replacement. <laughs> it's like. <a> new thing. <laughs> But if this filter proves to be, uh, it'll be, it might be a new class, right? It's just moving the step forward as we put a filter in, it does its job and then it doesn't need to be removed. Mm -hmm. That would be cool. Yeah. And there've been things like that in the past, you know, the, the, uh, that are kind of manifestations like the sentry filter that's out there, which the top opens yeah. up on its own. So we're in a process of continuing improvement. That's what we do. We're IRs mm -hmm. or vascular surgeons, right? We are people that are used to treating people with new and innovative methodologies. What I love about the new trial is it's using preserve definitions, like which is pretty cool, yeah, right? And yeah. it's not a surprise because I helped design it. So it's not a surprise that it went through, but it's moving forward. And I'm very excited about potentially that being a thing. Yeah. And we'll find out over the course of time. It is exciting. A lot of stuff you said preserve was your baby. It sounds like your baby's already growing up. And, and you know. <laughs> well, my... It was my shared baby. I would never <laughs> yeah. want to take away from, you know, there's a whole group. It took the village to raise Of course, life, you know. of course. Um, just in finishing, and this will be a great question for you. We, we've been asking folks lately, what do you think is the biggest innovation in healthcare 
since you've been, you know, a physician or been in, been in practice? Monoclonal antibodies. Really interesting. Okay. I thought you were, I was wondering if you were going to go with filters, but okay. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, filters are great, but monoclonal antibodies, man, what they have been able to do and what, and what a huge area of potential um, collaboration synergy. Mm. I mean, that the idea, I mean, I, you, you look at it, you look at what has happened in the world of hepatocellular cancer, which mm. is, you know, I, I said I'm a filter guy. I'm not really a filter guy. I'm an, I'm a cancer guy, um, but filters, we need Related. them in that pocket. Yeah. But the potential for what we do to work with the massive advancements in that field is huge. I am loving those potential collaborations. Great. Yeah. Good, 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 good. Well, listen, Matt, it's been a pleasure. I really appreciate you, you coming back. I'm, I'm looking, hopefully it won't be three years this time that, that uh, uh, hopefully we can get you here much sooner. But uh, looking forward to what else we, we find out from Preserve and going forward with the future work. And I would really highlight, really implore everybody who's involved with placing filters to read this paper. This, this is a very important paper to your daily clinical practice. It's not some theoretical thing. It's, it's, it's just really important. Um, it's a great read and um, it's going to affect how you take care of your patients. Thank you very much again. Great pleasure to be here. See you later. Likewise. Thanks everybody. That was Dr. Matt Johnson describing the importance of following patients with IVC filters. You can find the trial's initial publication on the JVIR website, jvir.org. We thank Dr. Johnson and Dr. Craycock for their time and you for listening to The King Choir. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you have any thoughts or ideas for us, drop us a line at kinkwire at surweb.org.